Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer Podcast. Today, my guests are Stephen Smith and Luke Hammond. Stephen is the co-owner and president of AgriGrow, a leading manufacturer of prebiotic technology for soil and plant health since 1980. Originally founded by his father, Ron Smith, Stephen is a second-generation owner and has worked full-time in the company since 1988. Stephen has helped lead the expansion of AgriGrow with a focus on building a prebiotic line of products that work in harmony with nature to improve the world we live in. As a result of these efforts, AgriGrow has expanded from a single product to a growing line of nutritional and prebiotic technologies. Today, these products are distributed around the globe to improve soil health, crop nutrition, livestock, wildlife management, home and garden plant care, and commercial waste management. Also joining us on the podcast is Luke. Luke serves on staff at AgriGrow as the VP of small farms and home and garden product lines. Luke is highly passionate about all things farming. He has established two different intensive vegetable farms in northern Arizona. Additionally, he has five years of successful gardening and livestock management at Homesteader Scale. Currently, Luke is building a diversified small-scale farm in southeast Missouri that will serve the local community and function as another research farm for AgriGrow. Luke and Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Michael. It's good to be here. Thank you, Michael. It's a, been looking forward to joining you and your, your listeners today. Yeah. So, Stephen, why don't you give us a little bit of an overview about AgriGrow? What do you guys do? Well, uh, we are actually what we call um, manufacturers in the area of biostimulant technology. Uh, our specific type of uh, technology is prebiotic in nature. And we basically try to produce products that enhance the, the microbial, the native microbial populations in any production environment. And while we started out in commercial agriculture, we've been able to take and expand the, that technology to be utilized in numerous industries from the livestock industry to even commercial and industrial wastewater treatment. So any area that has a, a, a microbiome, a native microbial population, we produce uh, prebiotic technology that enhances those so they can do their job more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And you do that worldwide. I mean, you guys chatted about how you're literally in, in dozens and dozens of countries. We are. Yes, we started in 1980. So this is our 42nd year. Mm -hmm. And over that time, we have grown considerably. Uh, we are, we do business and in, in sell in over 40 different countries. Um, and the, the company, the business has grown substantially since uh, 1980 and, and when it first began. But yes, we've been very blessed. All right. So 40 years in the soil health industry, that's a long time. And that's before like people even were talking about the soil food web and all that other things, you know, around that. Um, talk, take us back to that time, you know, back to the beginning, what was it like sharing with farmers and, and how did you have that conversation about, you know, the products you offered? Well, I've grown up in this business. My father actually started it in 1980. Um, and it was a struggle as you can imagine, Michael. I mean, uh, soil health is a, is a very, um, uh, important matter that's on the top of a lot of people's radar at this time. But back in the 1980s, whenever these products were first introduced, as you can imagine, 
he endured a lot of ridicule and scorn. Uh, was called a snake oil salesman for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And so it was very tough, very challenging uh, to have a product at that time that had an impact on the microbiome of the production environment. It was just something that was not discussed at that time. I was mm-hmm. a teenager, uh, so I've been in the business. Uh, I grew up in the business watching my father start it, helping with the manufacturing and, and transitioning to sales and obviously the president of the company today. Uh, but, but it was very challenging. And, and so, you know, one of the things that really turned the corner for us was in about 1990, whenever we realized that it, we were just always running up against opposition because we did not have data to really back up the claims. We had results, we had grower testimonials, we had visual proof, but it was still being frowned upon by the scientific community. And so it was then that we began realizing that, hey, uh, we're going to have to maybe adjust our approach a little bit and we began investing heavily in research. And so uh, over the the last 30 plus years, we've invested in numerous, uh, probably well over a thousand various research trials from numerous universities and research farms across the world to verify the effectiveness of our technology. So let's talk a little bit about that research because obviously you wouldn't keep doing studies and you wouldn't keep and if it didn't work, obviously it works. So kind of like when you go in to do a study, what is typically like the, what you're looking at is obviously it can be yield, but there are other things that obviously a study can show, correct? That is correct. And, and really for probably the first 20 years, 25 years, uh, our, most of our research was based upon yield. I mean, things uh-huh. that were actually meaningful to the farmer, the return on investment, uh, getting the actual um, uh, being able to verify the effectiveness of a product to show that it was financially profitable for the end user. Mm-hmm. But that was still not answering the questions as to what is causing these end results. What is contributing to the improvement in soil health? What is contributing to uh, enhanced plant development and root development and lower disease pressure and all the questions that came uh, with seeing these results in the field? And so we, we did a switch in our approach about three to four years ago, and we began investing in more detailed research to identify what exactly, what is the, the mechanisms that are being triggered and what is actually taking place in the microbiome? What are the, the native microbial populations and the specific species of bacteria that are being influenced by our technologies to explain scientifically the result? And so that has been basically a change that we have uh, adapted over the last few years. And it certainly has answered a lot of questions and separated us from Uh, other people in this industry that uh, do not really understand their technology. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. So first it was, does this actually give a yield? And now you've switched over to, so why does this actually give a yield and do the other things, like you said, like increased disease resistance, uh, faster root growth, all that sort of thing. And I think, you know, it's really interesting because we've obviously been using AgriGrow for a year now and we did a bunch of different studies. And one of them was rooting strawberry cuttings. And I remember p- being in the greenhouse and, and just looking at the, the bench and I could clearly tell the line because what we did is we literally laid out a sheet of plastic over part of the, of the bed or the, the table. And then we irrigated with the agrogrow, the ultra solution in the, the water. And then we obviously pulled back the thing after we'd run that all through. And then we grew it normally for, I think it was seven days. And after seven days, we basically pulled the plants out of the trays and laid them right next to each other. And I just walked over to one of my team and I said, Hey, go look at those two plants and which ones do you think, which one looks better? And it was, I mean, it was clear. I mean, the, the root growth on the agri-grow was, was three to four days ahead with significant more um, 
what are the little tiny white roots that are coming off the main roots? Uh, is it the the hair, the root hairs, or something? Feeder roots, yeah. you mean? Yeah, maybe the feet. Yeah, the feeder roots. Yeah, because those are the little ones. That was significantly more um, robust. And so, you know, obviously we've used it on a couple, of, and we've we've seen multiple benefits. But that one right there, with just seeing how fast it made a difference in those strawberry tips, um, yeah, it was was huge for us to just see that night and day difference. Well, and, and it's interesting. Again, you took the time to actually dig in the soil to see if there's a difference. And, and, and that's generally what happens to any growers that use these products. If they will take a time to really look at what is taking place in their plants, in the uh-huh. root development, in the stalk development, in the visual health of the plant, the results are there. You do not have to wait to the end of season at harvest to see if this has worked or not, because it is giving you evidence of change throughout the growing season if you're looking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's interesting because a lot of uh, us farmers are so busy farming that we typically don't take the time to slow down and actually do some of this, these basic trials to kind of see what can, what can happen for us. And so obviously we exist as a company to help farmers build enough equity and make enough money um, and systematize so they can have the time, because I think, you know, that has made a huge difference in us and just profitability in production on, especially the early years, because, you know, as the years progress, you know, um, the, the differences might change a little bit as your soil gets more um, advanced and more robust, but especially in those early years, it's huge differences by adding that, those bio, that biodiversity. I agree completely. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's, I view it as kind of a jump starter or just an accelerator. Yeah. Um, like, like for you last year, tell us a little bit about like the actual strawberry results that you had on your farm. Cause that was, you know, this coming year, you know, what's planted now root development. What was the yield difference for your trial? Yeah. yeah. So last year, and again, we bought this in 20, uh, summer of 2020. So that was, and before we bought it, it was conventional for, you know, 60 years. Um, the year before we bought it, they put on 13 different herbicides. It was, you know, basically corn trash when we bought it. So we dissed that down, we did cover crops, so a year in, we were still struggling with, you know, the calcium levels, still struggling with our fertility levels, put the strawberries in. And so we put those in and then we planted them in the fall. And then the spring is when I started using the agrigrow and trying that. And I think we calculated, Luke, it was $6 in product that gave us about a thousand dollar increase in yield. Um, and uh, the plants were more robust. We used our, our uh, fertilizer more efficiently. And we had about a three to four day, basically uh, they were ready three to four days earlier, which obviously in our industry, being the first one to market with strawberries is huge right? Um, because you lock in those early customers. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, I, I think I sent you a video where I just had, a two, had basically stacks of berries on either side of me and was showing the exact you know, this came from the agrigrow area, the ultra area, this came, didn't come from it, but basically it was four tra- treatments of the ultra through drip irrigation. And then I did one foliar spray of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was over about a six week period. And um, yeah, I mean, it, again, it, it made a huge difference. And I think we ended at the end calculation was a, a 19% yield increase um, that that gave us. So um yeah. And again, I think, you know, it's one of those things, once you start using it, you just uh, keep using it because it works. Right. right. So, uh, for the market gardener, I mean, that's, that's really a good dollar figure transition, you know, nominal, yeah. nominal investment, 
but since we're bringing this, this pro, our products all the way up, I say our, cause you know, I farm, but since we bring it all the way up to a retail value, I mean, that's a staggering margin. Whereas it's, it's always not that great for like a commodity crop um, just because the margin isn't there on a yield increase. It still pays for itself and makes money, but for the market gardener, it's, it's yeah, pretty it's, wild. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So that's, that's goes back to, I think, you know, if you're talking about the overall, like you obviously a lot of farmers looking at the dollar and cents aspect. And so, you know, obviously if you're doing 50,000 acres, and I know you guys have some farmers that are doing far more than that. Um, but you know, when you're on the 50,000 acre scale, it just has to make a dollar more, $2 more per acre to be profitable for them. But, you know, once you start moving to like where we are, where we're, you know, making, again, if I were to do the, the, the calculations, it would be 30, $40,000 more per acre by using it once you, um, well, let me actually think about that. You know, on the three rows that are hundred foot long, we made another thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a lot. <laughs> I, don't, I can't do the math right now, but if you were to exploit that out to an acre. So let's, let's talk here a little bit about, cause we've mentioned, I've mentioned the product that we're using, which is the ultra uh, walk us through your product line and kind of like the different things that you do offer. Cause you don't offer just like the prebiotic. You also offer some other things as well. Yeah. You want me to take that Steven or yeah, you go right ahead. Yeah, so uh, primarily, probably the by volume, the product that goes out our our doors the most is our our uh, chelated liquid calcium. We we are a, a big producer of calcium. Um, we have the prebiotic line at all different levels, from seed starting and seed coating uh, in the commercial conventional line to uh, foliar applications and soil treatments. Um, there's going to be some variance between each of those in terms of what you know technical micronutrient. Um, is going to be in there. We manufacture a product um, that's called Ignite S4 technical grade that goes in as a, a additive to dry fertilizer um, to where before it goes out on the farm, it's an additive to that fertilizer um, itself. Um, we have a full wildlife line, which is to the, the hunting industry um, called Deer Grow, which is Plot Start, Plot Boost. Um, we also, in the wastewater, we talked a little bit about that. Um, that's a biodegradation accelerator where it's injected into uh, typically the holding tank of wastewater treatment plants to help digest uh, sludge. Um, and that's a little bit grosser of a context, but it, it's very helpful for them. Um, so yeah, uh, what else do we have? We have, uh, Stephen, am I missing anything? No, there? I think that, that pretty much covers it. Yeah, I mean, small bottles, large bottles, all different size variations, that's yeah. kind of the focus. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, I've been to your warehouse and you guys have, you know, your tanks are 5,000 gallons and you're shipping tanker loads and, and, and uh, container loads around the world. I mean, basically what your product does, your line of products does is just speed up the biological activity and tur basically turbo boost the biological activity in the soil. Um, and, you know, as we're starting, as the technology came out and it's only really come out in the last 10 to 15 years, we're just seeing how important that is. Right. And I think it, 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 it's also like, what areas are you stimulating? You know, there's a lot of different things that you can do. And I think a lot of us in this growing space, you know, are fans of um, Dr. Elaine Ingram and what she's doing um, by compost teas and compost extracts yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of us do that and practice that on our farm. But even, even if we are using that with a microscope, these 
we're, we're doing different introductions of different bacteria every different time. Um, and so the results can be varied. They, they're not consistent. And, you know, we might be, if we mess up, we might be introducing something that is, is not beneficial to the environment. Well, um, you know, a case in point, we had a farmer we were working with in, in Nebraska um, on tomatoes, and they were doing a very complicated, um, uh, basically, treatment program. They're sending off tissue samples every week or so. But basically, in the, the season, we realized that because the, the lag of getting the tissue samples back and the putting the right material on, and they ended up putting the wrong material on, which meant it set them back about three weeks with their tomato crop. So, right. and going back to Elaine Ingram, and again, we've had her on the podcast and it's incredibly brilliant and the, the, what they're doing is, is incredibly complex. Um, but for the, again, for the average small farmer trying to keep up with all the, the right compost teas and making sure it's fungal versus bacterial, I think it's full-time job. And uh, I mean, again, at the size, if depending on the size of the farm you have, it can be completely overwhelming. And so that's why to me, simplifying it with, with this, being able to do this is just a heck of a lot easier for a farmer that's super busy. And you may not get, again, I haven't done AB test if you know, comparative herd methods, but you may not get hundred percent, but you're going to get, I believe most of the way there. And again, the yield increase. And again, at the cost, it's just, there's no, to me, there's not the, there's no reason why not to do it. Right. And I, I don't think anybody on the planet has actually tapped out what nature and healthy soils can actually perform at, you know, I think, well, yeah, Ray, yeah. Ray Tyler is getting closer and closer, you know, every year with, with increased yields, you know, at a different level. Um, and this last year was his first year using um, AgriGrow and, and he's a huge fan and he's had some banner years um, this year. We're not the only tool in his tool belt. I mean, he's, yeah. He's a very, very, very talented farmer, um, but it's a part of that that piece of the pie in which, um, you know, it's it's exciting to see where it's going. I guess, like, what is too much? You know, how? Like, yeah, is is there a limit? Can we tap out how much we can grow on one acre? Um, these are all like super exciting things that that we're seeing. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, again, it's one of those tools in the toolbox just to kind of push us that extra 5, 10, 8%, whatever it is there. Because obviously, if you don't have the nutrients in the soil to be able to support that, you're not going to be able to get there. But um, to be able to utilize that the best, that's where I think that microbiome really goes to the next level. Right, right. Yeah. Now, one of the biggest things people question is, okay, so what is actually a prebiotic? Because, you know, we talk about probiotics, we talk about, you know, all these other things, you know, this is, I think, a new word for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, so, so prebiotic is a new word for a lot of people. And pre is basically the concept of it. There's no live bacteria in the bottle. It's all, all, it, there's nothing live where most of your probiotic formulations are only going to include about one to four strains of a live microbial formulation, you know, depending on what kind of bacteria strain is in there. And oftentimes as you deal with anything that's alive, it's going to be growing and dying and changing and morphing in the bottle. So there's always like refrigeration requirements yeah. for, for products like that. If, if, if you're familiar with a lot of the probiotic lines out there. Um, and then additionally, they have to have a guaranteed analysis of what is going on in, in the bottle in order to make the claims. Everything's about um, 
in label laws, what claim can you make mm-hmm. if, if we were to test what's going on in the bottle as a fertilizer? Do you actually have what you say is in there as the active ingredient? And there's, there's tests where in the probiotic world, a large amount of the products that are out there on the marketplace don't actually pass the claims that are there. They might sometimes, but not all the time, because they're dealing with live um, bacteria in that context. Where we, on the other hand, we don't deal with live bacteria um, as it's in that stage. It's, it's, it's all a dormant, which allows us to have a, a four-year shelf life, um, which is incredible, which allows us to, to have a product that you don't have to refrigerate a product that isn't going to change if, if you accidentally leave it out in the barn and it freezes. Now, if it freezes and it breaks the jug and you, it spills yeah. all over the place, you lose the product, but, but it's not going to lose its effectiveness within that window, which is, which is really handy for the farmer. Yeah. yeah and, go ahead, Stephen. Yeah. yeah. If I could even add to that, uh, again, another, one of the things that separates a prebiotic from a probiotic and they are both good. They both have their uh-huh. places. So we're not against probiotics in any way. And we want to make sure we're clear of that. If anything, our technology enhances any probiotic that is out there. But one of the main differences, as Luke has already said, a probiotic, you're incorporating and adding specific strains of bacteria into the production environment to accomplish a specific function, whether that be to break down a certain nutrient or to enhance the, the soil's ability to fix atmospheric nitrogen or something of that nature. Whereas with our product with a prebiotic, the goal is to enhance the entire native microbial population in that microbiome. So, you know, back in, in about in the, oh, probably 10 to 12 years ago, they had identified in a tablespoon of soil about 6,000 different species of bacteria and fungicide, or excuse me, and fungi. Um, uh, two years ago, they have identified up to 18,000 species oh, of different yeah. bacteria and fungi in a single tablespoon of soil, and they're finding more every day. And so the diversity, when you talk about adding one to two or three or four strains into a pool of 20 to 30,000, you're going to have a targeted effect. And what we feel we can do and accomplish more effectively with a prebiotic is we can have an impact on that entire native microbial uh, population so that we're not just uh, affecting one or two strains we're affecting all of them to balance and work more in harmony with what nature is intended to do to get a larger overall effect in the production environment. Okay, I gotcha. Now, do you like work in number of strains? I mean, like how do you measure like what's, you know, what's happening? Well, from what we manufacture, obviously we start out, it is a fermentation process that we, our product is, de- is developed from. We start okay. out with culturing uh, uh, several strains of naturally bacteria and fungi. And so everything we produce is derived microbially. But as Lucas said, it's stabilized in a very stable formulation that has a minimum shelf life of four years and can be tank mixed with anything else. So the ease of use and the yeah. ease of application of this product is again, it is so easy for people to incorporate this into whatever the growing practices are. But, uh, but yes, everything that we start with, even though we do not have any living bacteria in the finished product, and there's a reason for that, I mean, obviously, yeah. uh, but yes, it is microbially derived from live bacteria. Yeah, because one of the thing we, ways we've used it is actually mixing it when we're doing uh, like a pesticide spray for like, uh, you know, in, in trust or uh, Pyganic or one of those. Um, and that's just super nice, again, because we're just trying to feed the plant while we're actually out there already. So it's just super nice to be able to get two for the price of one, I guess. That's right. 
Um, let's talk about your mission, because obviously you've been in this for a while now. You're still here. It's makes happening. Um, and I know the majority of your business is that the conventional or commercial ag. Talk to us a little bit about that. Luke, I'll let you take that. Well, yeah, like the the company started, um, you know, with the desire to make a big impact in 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 helping our world be a better place. Um, and back in the eighties, there wasn't there wasn't any there was very little impact you could make in small scale agriculture. Um, if you're talking about developing healthy soils and, and beginning to change people's minds, and and when we the, the approach, I mean, I wasn't there, but the approach was let's get as many acres covered um, as we can to help uh, make a bigger difference. Let's let's reduce the amount of petroleum-based fertilizers that are out there on the uh, that are being applied every single year. And so that's kind of been the approach. We're not going to change commercial ag overnight. Um, there's yeah. just no way we're going to. Um, while you know, my heartbeat is developing that small farm and the market gardener space and uh, re-engaging um, how agriculture is done. We're not going to do that overnight. And so the way that we approach it is if we can come alongside a conventional agriculture uh, or conventional grain producer and, and allow them to reduce uh, petroleum-based fertilizers by 30%, that's an enormous win. Um, that's a win yeah. for the planet. That's a win for uh, you know, the economics, that's a win for everything. And yeah, the especially thing, this like, year, I mean, right. like uh, urea went from what farm, I was talking to a farmer today, 360 to now over a thousand. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, a lot of these farmers, I don't think they're going to be cropping this year because they just can't afford to put the crop out. Right. And, you know, when you start talking about urea, you know, we get a little bit, we can go a lot deeper into like soil health and soil analysis and what we're what yeah. we would strive for um, and common misconceptions of, of what it takes to make a crop. But I mean, even, even some of the, the products that we use in, I mean, we are in commercial confined pasture poultry houses yeah. um, with a, with a litter treatment rather than using a product that's going to simply chemically uh, bind ammonia levels in a poultry house. We can come at it from a prebiotic approach and allow microbial life to basically digest and and reduce the amount of off gassing that takes place in a poultry house, um, which makes a better life for the bird, which gives a, yeah. a healthier end product for those of us that aren't buying pastured poultry, you know, organically raised chicken, like the majority of the U.S. Yeah, um, so that's kind of an, an approach that we've taken. Um, we're excited to get into the small farm space and and see, you know, how we can help the small farmer as well. So let's go back to like the conventional farmer. You said mentioned 30% there. So typically when a farmer comes in and starts using your product on a scale like that, do they just decrease the amount of fertility they're putting out? Are they just going to see, you know, the same amount, see a much increased yield? Typically, how do they manage that, that interaction there? I, I can address that question, Luca. You know, yeah. it, it really depends upon what the commodity prices are at, because quite frankly, uh, when we first started in the 1980s, and especially the early 1990s, when we began some of our earlier research, um, it was tested as a cost savings tool. We have mm -hmm. always known that growers are able to reduce their, their, their fertilizer inputs with this product because it enhances the uptake and utilization and availability of any applied fertilizer or the nutrients that are naturally occurring in the soil profile. And so, uh, you know, it depends. In a year like this, 
where fertilizer prices have gone so high, farmers are looking for ways that they can cut costs. They've yeah. got to stay in business. They got to be able to pay the bills, number one. And so it, you know, a lot of these guys are in survival mode. They're saying, what can I do to control my cost, but yet still be able to produce a crop? And a product like uh, our Ignite S2 and our foliar blend technology that have been scientifically tested and proven to enhance the uptake and utilization of phosphate and potassium uh, fertilizers by 30 to 70 percent. Uh, it, you know, it, it is a it is a very real cost savings tool. But what we also see happening on years where you have fertilizer prices, say, like last year, uh, yeah. you know, we had 15, 16 dollar uh, soybeans for, you know, commercial growers. And yet fertilizer prices were basically half, if not less than what they are right now. And so guys yeah. are saying, hey, they're trying to maximize their yields, cost are within checks. So let's just let's just use this as a yield enhancing tool to maximize. And so, you know, it, it happens both ways. We, we have got growers uh, that have been with us for many, many years that are basically using 50% of the recommended amounts of P and K where these products are utilized oh, wow. and 25% less nitrogen than what the, the, the crop costs were because the health of their soil. I mean, they're not only storing nutrients, but they're able to convert the crop residues to, you know, organic matter and utilization of the nutrients so much more effectively from just simply adding yeah. a prebiotic product to their regular program. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, let's talk about some of the like, uh, I know you do like cotton, do you guys do like uh, peanuts, I think was something else you mentioned. Is it similar with those? Or are there anything specific that they're going for in some of these other crops? Uh, yeah, we use the same products regardless of the crop that is grown. And, you know, you, the thing that you come back to is basics. I mean, even though our products are used all around the world in such a bro broad variety of, of soil types and climates, mm -hmm. The similarities are all plant life still have the same 16 essential elements that are needed to produce that crop. And so anytime you can go in there, and again, the thing to keep in mind is our product is designed to enhance the native microbial population, regardless of whether that's in India or whether that's in Argentina or it's right here in Southeast Missouri where, we're, where uh, our business is located. And so yeah. we can use this product to enhance the native microbial populations to do their job more efficiently and more effectively and again, the growers result with higher quality crops, enhanced yield, uh, better utilization of their applied fertilizers, uh, less disease pressure. I mean, the, the results are the same regardless of climate and the type of crop that it's applied to. Now, all right, yeah. Now, one of the things too you guys have is a calcium product. And you know, we've always worried about the calcium magnesium ratio. And typically we've put on like, let's say a gypsum or like a high cal lime. Why would someone want to go with a, a liquid calcium product? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple things that are, are misnomers when it comes to calcium. Oftentimes we're adding uh, a lime or, or, or a gyp based on pH alone. You know, mm -hmm. most, lime, most people, when they think calcium, they're thinking liming product because that's how it's measured. How, how, much, um, how much lime do we need to add in order to buffer our pH to where we want it to be? Yeah. Um, but that presents a huge problem. If your base saturation is, let's say at 55% and your soil only calls for a hundred pounds of calcium. All right. So Does explain it, to folks what base saturation is. So what we're shooting for in all of our soil analysis is the right ratios of everything and what our base saturation is. Uh, Steven's probably got a really, a, a much simpler form. <laughs> Steven, help me if you will on how to say that. Well, basically, I mean, you know, again, we go back uh, 
uh, basically looking at what percent of the nutrients ought to occupy the soil profile. Again, we want to be somewhere in that uh, 68 to 72, 73% percent base saturation of calcium. When it goes through a water soluble test to show what that soil is composed of, you okay. want a breakdown of those rate nutrients and what ratio they need to be in for optimum plant growth. Uh, and so again, when we look at a soil test, uh, we're not looking at to, to just add to what Luke is saying, and he's 100% dead on. You, you've got to look beyond what the pH of a soil is to determine, does that soil provide adequate calcium for those growing crops? And mm -hmm. so again, a pH test is not going to give you that, but a base saturation test that gives you a breakdown of what is available with those various individual elements will then let you know what is available within that soil profile and what actually needs to be added. Gotcha. Okay. So like, yeah, this, the calcium being the magnesium being now hydrogen typically sometimes shows up there too. Uh, is there, you know, something particular about that, why that's important or hydrogen just kind of shows up depending on how the other things are set up. Typically I, I don't, I don't uh, mess too much with hydrogen. So let, let me, let me phrase it like this. So if we're looking at base saturation, mm -hmm. we are trying to look at, um, the ratio of, of what nutrients are available for the cation exchange. So your CBC. Okay. Um, and, and it's, it makes up like your saturation for calcium should be between 60 and 70% based on your cation exchange in terms of uh, where that is at, how much nutrients can be absorbed through that exchange. Yeah. And the CEC is basically how big the bank is in the soil, correct? Like yeah. a low, the low CEC can only hold so many pounds of yes, nutrients, yes, yes, high yes, C, yes. like a clay soil. That's why they, they have a flatter particle and more things can hang on there. And that's why the high organic matter typically has a higher CEC to, as well. Correct. And so if you have a, a, a CEC of uh, over, is it's eight, right? I'm not looking at any notes here. Yeah, over eight. CEC and of, under. Yeah, CEC of over eight, you're going to be trying to seek a base saturation of calcium of 70%. Okay. That, yeah. would, that would be ideal. If your CEC is under eight, you're going to be, you only need to have a base saturation of about 60. That's what you're shooting for. Um, but I want to look at it like this if we're talking base saturation and we're talking percentages, that's a percentage of, of the whole, of the pie, mm -hmm. 60% of that. Most soils in America are not. Um, where they should be in relationship to that percentage. Yes. Calcium takes up the majority holding space of your soil. And so if people are, are struggling with their, their growing, that should be the first place that they're checking. Is there calcium where it needs to be? Mm -hmm. I throw out pH until the very end because in Arizona, I was able to grow very successfully large quantities of tomatoes, um, lettuce, broccoli, anything really with a pH of an 8.3, mm -hmm. hyper high alkalinity, 8.3 yeah. yeah. pH. I could produce 2000 pounds of tomatoes a week Yeah, off of not a lot of ground, um, but I had the right um, calcium availability for my plant. And that's without blossom end rot or anything like that. Like those are yeah. signs that, that your tomatoes aren't getting uh, the calcium that they need. Yeah. Now, okay, so I'm sitting here looking at soil tests because that's what I always do when I talk to soil people. Um, total exchange capacity, is that the same thing as CEC or is that something different? Different. I think that includes something 
more, but that that that's actually just like Logan Labs' way of basically saying CEC. Okay, that's what I figured. And yes, you're yeah. right. That's a Logan yeah. Labs, and that's what, yeah. Um, okay, so then I'm seven point two nine. So I'm supposed to have sixty percent, and I'm showing fifty fifty three point five seven. So I'm still low, and my magnesium is a little too high. So I definitely need to worry about my calcium. All right, so we kind of get there, but back to the liquid calcium. Talk to, talk about let's go because that was the original question. Yeah. And so unfortunately, calcium, yeah, unfortunately, sometimes you have to yeah, answer. We, yeah, questions. we digress. So the liquid calcium, we're, we're viewing it as a calcium fertilizer, not a liming material. Okay. Okay. Because a liming material is specifically um, for buffering pH when you consider a liming material. So if they say add lime, that's, that's calculated off of pH, not on calcium needed for the soil. So we want to look at our calcium as a fertilizer. So if, our, if we've got a 10% guaranteed um, analysis minimum of what our calcium is, you're only going to need a few gallons to get the pounds of, of calcium on that acre that you need. Gotcha. So you're saying the liquid calcium is just a lot more effective and it's a lot more available than the other calciums? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, do you recommend folks do like a blended approach where they're adding, you know, maybe some gypsum that's more long-term or do you feel like the liquid calcium is just uh, better uh, and explain why? Or why yeah, not? so like it's it's a tool in the tool belt. So a liquid, we don't view ourselves as, hey, you know, we've, we've got the silver bullet. There are no silver bullets in farming. Um, this is a great tool to get very um, fast results with a, with a calcium into your your program. Like if you're mid season and you see some, some blossom in, right, you can do a foliar treatment, pick off that fruit that has blossom in rot and next, um, you know, flowering cycle, you're probably not going to have that same problem. Mm, um, so it's fast. It's fast. And it's very, very inexpensive. For yeah. example, to get the same amount of, uh, like calcium, you know, if you need a, a certain amount of pounds per acre of, of calcium on your ground, it, you're going to have to be spreading, Tons of lime. Yeah, yeah. You know, and come to think of it, I, I did use that this year. Um, I've forgotten that we did throw some of that liquid calcium down because we were seeing a little blossom end rot this year, and uh, it, it it cleaned it right up. Actually, right. right. And, and Michael, I want to add to what Luke was saying as well. Without a doubt, we want to make this clear: we are not, uh, we don't not look at our agricow as a replacement for liming material. Uh, we'd be the first ones, our, our team, our agronomy staff that works within our office, we review people's soil tests daily. Mm -hmm. And again, we'll be the first ones to recommend that, no, you absolutely need to add limestone or gypsum or some other liming material yeah. when it is needed. And again, but the problem is in many soils is that the, the, a lot of the recommendations these growers get are they're basing it just off of the pH. And again, uh -huh. getting back to the base saturation, that lets us know, you know, are you really deficient on calcium? And you need a liming material or is the calcium you have within your soil profile simply tied up and unavailable? And again, that is one of the things that is unique about AgriCal from any other product, liquid calcium product on the market, is you're mm -hmm. not only supplying soluble calcium in a plant available form that is you can be utilized and accessed as soon as it's supplied. Uh, mm -hmm. But you are also having an impact on the uh, calcium content within the soil profile, because for every gallon of agricow that is applied, it has enough, what we refer to as the active ingredients, which are the organic acid blend that we make that product. 
they have the ability to break down and to bring in a solution between three and 400 pounds of actual calcium carbonate per acre. And so that is why when you apply three to four gallons of this per acre, we can see a dramatic increase in the base saturation. We haven't seen increases where people will send a soil test and uh, their base saturation was 48, which is very, very low. And yeah. after using this, test it, you know, six months later, and my God, goodness, it's been brought up to 58 or it's been brought up to 60 without yeah. adding tons of liming material. And so this product has the ability to change the base saturation profile. It's more than just supplying soluble calcium. It is, it is a good tool to use to balance the soil profile. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly. That, uh, and, I, and I think the other thing, like, to add on what Stephen was saying, when we start talking about um, tie-up and, and nutrient tie-up, a lot of times that tie-up is caused by excess fertility programs. Yeah. If you have excess phosphorus, you're going to tie up nitrogen and calcium and, and, and boron and zinc. Um, if you have excess potassium, you're going to tie up calcium and magnesium and boron and zinc. And that's what most fertilizers are, are NPK values. Um, yeah. And, and that's where we begin to get into a lot of problems. And then when you get into problems, you have pests and, and, and pest problems where we got we to gotta get the balance right before we get too excited about feeding the plant with whatever's on the shelf. Yeah. Or else you're just shoveling it on and it's just either washing away or can't be utilized. Right. Um, yeah. Do you guys have any blueberry growers using that, using your products? We, we have had, and honestly, you know, being a manufacturer, one of the things that uh, I, I'm sure we do to tell you the truth, but do we work directly with them and sell directly? Probably not, because again, we're manufacturers, so most of our products are sold through distributors around the country. Gotcha. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah we, we have had people right. using blueberries very successfully. Yeah, because we just put in a blueberry pet. Well, we're putting in it this spring, but we didn't start thinking about it till last summer. So, you know, our biggest problem there is lowering our pH dramatically, but- in thinking about that, from what I understand, it's not necessarily lowering the pH, it's getting whatever the nutrient is. And again, I'm sure I'm going to get three emails or five emails from the blueberry growers out there and tell me what I'm actually, what I'm actually need to be saying. But I think it's more about the nutrients that the lower pH allows to be more available. Um, Could be. I've never been a blueberry grower. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So. No. Yeah, I'll bring. I'll, I'll. I'll. We'll find a blueberry grower to get on here and and, and kind of share us the the whole detail. Yeah, I'll jump on that. Google and type in how to blow or grow blueberries and see what it says on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not much help either. I just know they taste good and I like them. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. I think there's well, antioxidants in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. Um, so interestingly enough, I was in a a, a tour this fall. At, well, it was the winter because it was actually cold. Um, but we were in Michigan and they walked us through you know, a whole blueberry field. And the reason the blueberries are grown in that part of the state is because of the pH naturally is so low. So, I mean, it was literally like 500 acres of blueberries and you're driving by, you know, these massive fields and they're using these huge sprayers and all that. So it's like, it's, you know, we, again, it's commercial farming for blueberries. So it's it fascinating. Um, talk to us a little bit about, because I know obviously you're in the soil health realm and some of the stuff right there you share was great. What are some typical soil myths that people believe that kind of need to be like, you know, reconfigured as we're kind of trying to learn, I think the new way of managing soils. Yeah, I think the number one myth is probably like, I think of it like the guys that, like the home gardener is, if some is good, a lot is better. Mm -hmm. um, People over fertilize. 
I mean, they over-fertilize, 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 and they cause their own problems because of that. Um, I think the other myth is definitely like in, in PK. Um, it's just a myth. Why do we start there? There's a lot of ways for, for <laughs> a lot of bigger problems in the soil um, world or pie chart that we need to work on first. Other micro, uh, macronutrients like calcium. I, I think calcium is the number one underrated mm-hmm. um, ele- like element out there. I mean, we should be looking at that first. Yeah. That is, that's the, the trucker of what moves nutrients into the plant. If we don't have good calcium, we're not going to have, we're, we're robbing ourselves. Well, and the other thing about calcium is it's incredibly tied to how tight or loose your soil is. And, you know, this year, this fall harvesting carrots, our soil, and again, I, I just talked to you about this, the levels we're at, we're at mm-hmm. super low and the soils were super tight. And so right now the crew is struggling to clean the carrots. And that's because there's dirt that's still firmly uh, tied on or just held on to that because of the low calcium. Uh-huh. So, um, again, we're reevaluating, we have got to push our calciums, you know, up at least 10 or 15 points so we can, you know, get, grow cleaner carrots. And, uh, you know, something we were dealing with today is trying to clean carrots even today, um, out there. So, um, but yeah, I, I think that's true. Steve, and one of the things that, that can be done that's a, an also benefit of this is this product can be applied in furrow at planting or when you're transplanting your plants. And if you have that mm-hmm. type of issue where you know calcium is a deficiency, you don't have to wait and just foliar feed this or wait and inject it through your drip tape. You can actually use it as a drench solution to get it right in that root zone area right. to improve the soil structure and, and minimize uh-huh. that, that problem. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. Knife, so, it in. Yeah. Knife it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We definitely have the capacity to do that. Okay. Um, now, okay. So a good, some is good. And I think the other thing too, obviously, if you are using, um, the, the, the ultra products, um, that you can use less fertilizer. And, um, you know, I, I, we had, you know, so we obviously started using it this year and then I called you up and said, Hey, can I have a case of your home and garden size? And so I passed it out to some of the people that, and they came back and was like, what was it you gave us? Because they had their best garden ever. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just, it allows to be a lot more effective. Um, now, the other thing is too, is a lot of people go out there and just buy a 10, 10, 10 bag or whatever it is that you can get. Is that what they should be doing? Or what's, what's, what is the, what they need to be focusing on besides the calcium? Well, I think that depends on like what, what they're trying to do. I think if they are shooting for organic, don't buy any petroleum-based fertilizers. The fertility program for a market garden should be um, quality blended uh, compost um, and and the right manure, sourcing the right manures um, that are aged, you know, whether that be a pelleted chicken manure, that's where you're going to get a lot of the NPK values that you need. Um, that, that's the fertility program on my farm is, is compost with, with using products like ultra and then getting my calcium correct. And it really begins to minimize a lot of the challenges that you can face as a grower. Um, I, I think that's it. I think that, you know, you, you open this up with kind of like myths. Um, we get calls in here all the time asking, cause they assume that they're, well, what's the number value on, on ultra? What's the number value mm-hmm. on calcium? Because they're, everybody has been so ingrained in, a 10, 10, 10, or, a you know, 10, 13, 13, or a 48, 001, you know, or whatever their, 
number is you have to understand what that is. Those are percentage ratios of what the value is per hundred pounds. And so if you've got a bag of 10, 10, 10 fertilizer per hundred pounds of that fertilizer, it's going to contain 10 pounds of nitrogen, 10 pounds of potassium, 10 pounds of phosphorus. Um, that's what that, those numbers mean. And that's how you calculate how much nutrients we need to add on this field based on a soil analysis. So the, the, you know, talking about myths, don't focus on those things. For example, a soil that has an organic matter of 3%. Okay. I don't know, like your soil analysis, what was it? What's yeah, your soil we're, well, I think we're at some of them are at two, two, three, two, five. Okay. So, so adjust these numbers a little bit with me. So if it's yeah. 3%, your, your organic matter in your soil is essentially producing an NPK value of a 10, one, one. Okay. So it's, it's releasing that amount of available nitrogen to the plant at that ratio. Okay. The organic yeah. matter is your, your, that's what's metabolizing all these nutrients. The, the metabolites, the enzymes and amino acids are what is allowing these nutrients for, to, to flow through the water and into the plant. Mm -hmm. And that's where we want to really land is build that organic matter, build that organic matter, focus on that. And manures do that. Um, compost does that. Petroleum-based fertilizers do not build organic yeah. matter. They can actually deplete organic matter. Yeah, because they just burn it. There's no there's no organic matter in them. I mean, that's the beauty of like a chicken-based fertilizer. And I know a lot of farmers use it Correct. is they just have so much organic matter in there because it's a manure product. Right. Um, so you do, it does help. I mean, I know some farmers that are large scale and they don't use any compost and they're only doing the chicken fertilizer. And I mean, I don't like to see that because again, I don't, if they're not really adding a ton and it doesn't really change it too much, but it's better than, as you said, the petroleum ones. Um, right. you know, the other one we really go for is peat moss, um, because it's, um, there's absolutely no weed seeds in it. And it really actually, a lot of people say it's acidic and it pushes down your pH. We find it doesn't. We find it really keeps your pH about the same, but um, it just adds incredible amount of organic matter and it really opens your soil up. We find a lot of, um, it just helps with the soil tilth a lot. Right. And it depends on like your context. If you're, if, if you follow a lot of the guys that are no till and, and, and using, um, chip and mulch in the aisleways and that's yeah. slowly breaking down over time. That's adding a tremendous amount over the years. And it's, it's kind of exponential to where the more organic matter that builds and the more microbial life that's happening, the faster that chip is going to break down. Absolutely. Um, and, and the more compost you spread. So like for me, like in my, in my high tunnels, I can just kind of pour on the, the chip in the aisles, as long as I'm not overdoing it and mixing it in yeah. at a carbon ratio into my growing space, um, I'm going to be okay. But once I start mixing that in, or if you're using a, a tillage context and you're running, you know, cross path tractor and you're mixing that, that carbon into your growing space, then you can get a little bit under, <laughs> you know, you can, you can start facing some other challenges there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that chip aspect too, um, it, it seems to be working really well for folks in the pathways, as long as you don't mix it. And I'm really excited about, you know, that, because again, the worms are going to pull that into the subsoil in the bed and actually help increase the organic matter of the bed, um, by, you know, right. what they can, they can pull off. Right. And then um, the other thing you got to keep in mind there is make sure it's chip 
you know, local tree services is a great way to get chip. Um, you know, in our area, we have a huge amount of sawmills um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and we've got a lot of easy access to really green or even old uh, sawdust. Okay. The problem with the sawdust is that carbon nitrogen ratio is so high, it draws way more. Okay. It breathe. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. breathe. I did some trials on this um, with, with oak sawdust. Um that soil gets so hot because there's no oxygen because there's not enough air for that. The, the particles are so tight. Okay. When moisture gets on it, air can't get down into that, that growing bed. And so if you use that in your rows, it's going to suck the nitrogen out of those, those growing beds. And you're going to have, you're not going to have weeds in that row. That's for sure. But okay. you're also not going to be able to grow anything else in the garden. All right. So this is good anecdotal experience. Um, yeah, but, oh, that's good. But if you want to organically control a fence line and you're good with a little bit of elbow grease and shovel power, you can dump dump that uh, you know sawdust along your fence line, and you can create quite a bit little buffer on your on your fence line rather than using a yeah up uh, product. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's actually fascinating because I remember driving down there and just seeing. I mean, what are you like the the pallet? Uh, wood capital of the world almost? I don't know. Stephen probably knows that better than I do. <laughs> well, actually, actually, uh, we are in the heart of that in, in the 1930s and 1940s, just a little community north of where we live. Grand Missouri was the uh, timber capital of the nation at that time. So, oh, yeah, wow. it, it's not only a beautiful area in the Ozarks where we, we live, but uh, timber is a big industry here for sure. Yeah, the sawmill in every single corner. Um, let's move in. Let's keep talking about that organic matter aspect of things. Now, can the prebiotic help build organic matter? Absolutely. It can be a, a very important part. In addition to adding organic matter through products like manures and green manure crops and peat moss and things of that nature, you can also enhance the, uh, the organic content in your soil by stimulating your native microbial populations. Because again, there's families of bacteria that are stimulated from the use of this product. And some of those families mm-hmm. are your decomposers that will break down your crop residues and, and, and help you know, utilize them, convert them to organic matter. So it's very common for us. Now, where we're at, you, you said you had around two and a half percent organic matter where your farm is located at. Well, down here where we're at, you know, we have soils that are one percent or even below one percent. Mm. I mean, uh, and, and so it's we're not going to take a one percent soil and make it a three or four percent soil. Uh, but we do see improvements uh, in the organic matter content on soil tests where farmers are testing every one to two years and tracking what these products are doing and the effect that they're having. Uh Absolutely. We consistently see your organic matter content go up from simply the addition of a prebiotic. Well, and I'm assuming the prebiotic obviously helps with breaking down litter too. So it's going to, that's obviously one of the first steps is breaking down the litter into the dead and then moving from the dead into the very dead, um, which is the actual long-term organic matter. Yeah. And typically we like to see, when we were in New York, we were looking at we were starting our soils at three, three and a half percent organic matter. And then when we finished up there, we were looking at about 5% organic matter. So again, for me, 2% is still really super low, mm-hmm. um, but we're just our soil type. I mean, we're on a sandy, really sandy gravelly loam, which is great for growing on because we can 24 hours or 36 hours after two inches of rain, we're out cultivating, but it does make it super challenging to try to increase that organic matter. And, and then in the middle of the summer, we dry out in our like a uh, parking lot. So Right. And I think, I think that acceleration, like a, a lot of guys in our context, anyway, the market gardeners using silage tarps or, or even uh-huh. row cover, you know, woven fabric. Anytime we do a chop and drop, 
you know, go through with, with an ounce of ultra and a sprayer and spray that, that dead material, that, that, um, you know, what you yeah. just cut and that's going to help digestion that much faster when you cover it. So you can actually increase a few days, uh, depending on the context and, and get that, that bed flipped to where it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. Now with that too, let's look at, um, some steps. Let's say someone's looking to, um, get started with uh, what are the first things that they need to focus on? Get started with just an agri-grow program or? Well, you know, just, I think of what we deal with a lot of people too, that, you know, they may be, you know, adding some chicken manure, maybe they're adding a little compost. We'll just say like, if someone is really getting serious about this, what's the kind of steps they need to, to go through? I mean, obviously I, I would say you've got to start doing very consistent soil tests. Right. Yeah. And I think based on consistency, you, you want to have the same time of year um, drawing, drawing the same analysis every year. You know, here's a, you can, you can pull a very big difference um, on an, on a soil analysis just by spring and fall. It's going to show different numbers based on how that soil is waking up and um, atmospheric nitrogen, all those different things. So you want to make sure that you're consistent in terms of the time of year that you're doing it and don't make your <coughs> calculations year to year based on, um, variances within there. Um, so first thing, do the right soil analysis. It needs to have, um, it, it should be an SM three, uh, a Melic three test. You need to be pulling that test so that you get all of your, uh, micronutrients, your calcium, your organic matter and pH in there. Uh, soil analysis that does not have those things will not help you in the long haul. Um, it'll probably mess you up and you're going to tie up all of your nutrients by over fertilization. And that's what a lot of extension agents or, or the simple cheap do it yourself tests yeah. do. Um, these are very, very inexpensive tests go through. I mean, they only cost 15 to $25 depending on the lab and you're going to get a really good look into where you're at. So yeah, start there. And you can go above that too. I mean, we actually spend with Logan, we're spending more than that, but we're going for all the trace elements. We're getting the ammonia, the nitrates, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And sometimes we'll even do a pace test, which gives us a complete, you know, nether look at that. And from how I understand pace test is that's what's available right then and there from the soil, correct? Right. To the plant water soluble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So we talked about soil tests. What else? Um, you know, after you do that, you know, correct your calcium. And then if, if you want to do it, you got to calculate how much product you need and save money on shipping. Um, like a lot of people, they want to start very small with us, which is great. Um, see how they try it. Um, the least expensive entry level into this is correcting your calcium with it, with like our chelated liquid calcium. If you get that corrected, um, that's very, very cost effective. We're talking a few gallons per acre. Um, you're 50 to hundred bucks, depending on how much you're growing and how much you need. Um, then when you, you jump into one of our prebiotic lines, it, it's going to last you four years, figure out what the program is, how much you're growing. We're trying to do some things on uh, some new websites to really help you analyze, okay, what, what kind of grower am I and how much product do I need for a year? Mm -hmm. Um, just so that it's, it's Amazon easy for you to order and get started. 
Well, and I would just say, I mean, if you're from one to three acres, uh, you you offer like a combo that does like calcium and the ultra together, right? And like a one one it, exactly. And we're and we're coming up with some new combo packs just for based on national averages of how much calcium do you need on a national mm-hmm. average, mm-hmm. and then based on the kind of grower you are, you know, if you're a market gardener and and you're going to be selling, you know, cases and flats of tomatoes and flipping beds and beds of lettuce. Um, if we can get those percentages of how much you're able to grow um, up, it's going to more than pay for the product. And you can use it as often as guys like Ray Tyler. Um, yeah, he's doing it twice a week. Yeah, he's doing twice a week, really low dose. Or, or yeah. even, I mean, every two weeks is a really solid program to be on. Um, a lot of like the commercial guys, they're, they're on a program of about, they, depending on what it is, um, three to four applications a year with their other applications. And that might be a half gallon of the product, um, mm-hmm. to a gallon of the product max, um, per acre. Yeah. A full year regimen. Yeah. I mean, for like us, where we're irrigating like once or twice a week, we're pretty much literally anytime we're irrigating the dosatron is on pulling it through at a low, mm-hmm. super low da- dose. Um, yeah. and that's why, and that's one of the things we were struggling with is how to get it at such a low dose, because those dosatrons actually don't like you to go so low. So, um, yes, yeah, so we're still trying to figure that out. I think a bigger, a bigger mm-hmm. pull tank is what we need, like a 50, 50 gallon pull tank and to be able to put it very little bit in that. No, no. On your farm, you don't have much of a, a full year program. I mean, again, for us, it's all going to be drip or overhead, and we do foliar typically only when we need to put something else on like surround for our peppers or, you know, pyganic for our flea beetles. But again, we're trying to solve the flea beetles with a triple threat this year instead of that. Mm-hmm. And we're just growing a lot of less things that take that. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where we're going. I mean, again, it's well, foliar typically means it's me or one of my other employees, which is uh, the farm manager are tied up with doing it. And right. so irrigation, I can flip a switch and walk away for two hours and then it automatically can kick off or I can actually have it completely automated with our our system. So um, that's why is that basically we're trying to do anything we can to reduce the number of hours that I have to spend doing a very specific task, which is not like working on the business because basically this kind of task is working in the business and my farm manager and I need to be working on the business. We're not quite at that scale where we have like a team that's dedicated to that, you know, putting on a full year spread, even though I know it would increase our production. Um, Like we had, you know, we lost out on some nutrients this year and had to hit all of tomatoes with a a full year. And again, two weeks later, we could see the green, the leaves greened right back up and away we went. But um, again, if we don't have to, we try not to. Right, right. Yeah. Where are you on your thriving farmer journey? If you go to growingfarmers.com, you can click on our assessment, take our assessments, just a few questions, and what it will do is show you exactly where you are on the five-stage thriving farmer journey. And what this will do then is give you some next steps, some resources to help you know what to focus on next in your business to move you to the next level with your farm. So let's also talk about, um, you know, I think you, you kind of mentioned the value there too. I mean, what kind of rate would a, a market gardener typically ounces per acre be putting on? You know, in, in the market garden context, we got to figure out like a typical application would be about 16 ounces per acre um, at a time. And that, that's what we would suggest. So for me, when I come through on a foliar treatment, 
I, I know about how many tanks I'm going to go through. And it usually is about one ounce per gallon. I can cover, um, I can cover the full acre with my sprayer in, in eight gallons. Um, and, and so I, I, I'm a little bit less there, but I'm also spraying a lot more frequent. I would much rather for the market gardener see frequency over quantity. Um, because we're talking about stimulating native microbes. If we're continually stimulating them, they're going to be operating at peak performance. We're going to see that enzymatic activity begin to explode um, and the CFU gotcha. rating yeah. explode. And it's, it's, it's going to just keep going up. Now, once that number starts slowing off and slowing down, which we've, we've run some university tests where it's about a 28 day cycle, um, to where those okay. numbers slow down. So that was the, that was the next question I was going to ask. I was like, yeah, okay, like, based on your high pollutant research over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. About twenty eight days, we we see that where it stopped. You know, there that that enzymatic activity is not happening um, at that next level, and it would be good to give it another boost with with one of those yeah. properties. But obviously, if you talk to Ray, he just wants to just completely totally dump it on all the time. Yes, but at a very very small rate. And so, okay. it, it, you know, it's, it's dosing, it's dosing, um, you know, and people are trying, people are trying things all over the place and we're trying to get some more data on it. You know, how much can we put before it's just throwing dollars out the window? Yeah. Well, and I, I think the other thing, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, but typically the research you're doing is with, um, universities and stuff like, cause you want to be going for actually like peer reviewed or have, you know, the stamp of it. And typically they're not operating, let's say like a, a very highly biological market garden setup. That's correct. That is so correct. I think, you know, yes, some of this is still a little, and this was, you know, this is really interesting because this was kind of when you came to me originally, Luke, I threw back at you as like, well, pff, my soil is already biologically active. I don't think that, you know, you can really help me that much. And, you know, obviously I was proved very wrong. Um, so, you know, I think that is the other thing is like, we had gone back and forth and talked about, you know, again, the other thing was Ray. I mean, Ray proved that wrong too, is that, you know, he's incredibly focused on the biology there, but even, even the ultra increased, increased what he was doing too. Right. And, and we can have biologically active soils, but when you start looking under that microscope a lot further, which I never have, you know, I'm not yeah. that deep, but it's all about the enzymatic activity and the interactions between each of you know, all the way down to the atomic level, these interactions, yeah. what's stimulating what, um, that's nutrient uptake, that's um, disease suppression, you know, all the different microbes interacting is the ecosystem of our soils. Um, and and that's, that's where there's a lot more study to be done. Um, but at the same time, we're seeing really good results and have for 40 years. Yeah, you know, now this is, yeah. Hey, I, I just want to speak to one of the changes, you know, as I said, we've been doing research for over 30 years now. And I, th I think back, uh, you know, one of your first questions was, you know, what is the proper dosages? And, and one of the first studies we did was with a Dr. Mac Wilson from Southeast Missouri State University. This was back in the early 90s. And he was their okay. vegetable specialist. And so we had him tested on tomatoes and, and carrots and a, and a broad variety of, of vegetable crops, commercial vegetable crops. And we had him do rate studies as well, trying, hey, we're going to go with a 16 ounce per acre soil yeah. applied rate 
or a 32 ounce and a 48 ounce. And then we had a, a number of tests done that were also on foliar tests and testing the frequency of application. And as Luke said, we found out that whenever you do a, a soil test, there's really no benefit when I'm talking about our prebiotics, not our liquid calcium. So I want to make sure that your listeners yeah. understand. But on our prebiotics, anything over a 32 ounce breaker application was really, uh, that's where we maxed out the return mm -hmm. as far as that goes. Now, what we found out is that in, by backing it back to 12 to 16 ounces per acre per application and increasing the frequency of application is what uh -huh. provided the best results. But talking about microbial populations, one of the things that's important to think is it's not just about, hey, you know, you can put molasses out there. You can use a lot of products that are good and they have their place and they will increase your microbial populations. Mm -hmm. But what we are doing, what our technology is doing is far more significant than that. And I want to make sure your listeners understand this, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that it is more important. I mean, yes, microbial activity is important. Having high microbial populations in the production environment is very important. But what is more important is what do those microbial populations consist of? What species and families of bacteria are actually being influenced? And so what we have found out uh, from some of the research that's just been done in the last three to four years is that we are increasing your beneficial microbial populations while naturally suppressing your pathogens. And so uh, one of the studies that was done by the USDA in conjunction uh, with Dr. Uh, Bob Kremer, who's a USDA scientist based out of the University of Missouri, is they did evaluations and they have an index, and I did not even know what this meant until they gave us the report. There is a measurement called the Shannon Index. Um, and it basically measures the richness and diversity of your microbial populations. Interesting. The more diversity you have, the healthier soil is, the more productive it is. So it's more than just stimulating microbial populations. It's stimulating increasing the richness and diversity of those microbial populations. And that is what we've been able to produce. That is what is being affected by the introduction of our uh, prebiotics into the production environment is you're not only increasing the populations, you're increasing the diversity of your beneficial microbial populations while naturally reducing the pathogens. So that is a very important thing. I just want to make sure uh, mm -hmm. to make to your listeners is that uh, it's doing more than just stimulating bacteria. It's stimulating specific families of bacteria that are going to contribute to plant health and increased yield. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the, the right type of thing at the right time. Right. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's talk about, you know, other ways, Luke, because you've used the the prebiotic in a bunch of different ways. Talk through some of the stuff that you've been telling me about. Uh, what have I been telling you about? <laughs> uh, uh, like compost, um, you know, using it in there. I mean, you, you were doing uh, applying it to trees. Yeah, so um, I, do, I do a lot of different things with it. Um, I do uh, some deep root injection on, on trees to, to get mm -hmm. some subsurface um, activity below like a sod. Um, structure uh, below that top six inches of soil where, where a lot of the tree roots are, are, are being there, um, using it to kind of, kind of like, um, uh, you know, the soil food web Dr. Elaine Ingram would do, where you're stimulating that, that, that basic outside um, of, of the bark and the cambium and, and stimulating the bacteria to protect the, the cell wall structure using ultra in that way. Um, I, I set up a, a sprayer that sprays about 40 feet in the air um, and, and is very high pressure that can create a really good fog to, to get that really, really fine particle um, for, for absorption. So I do stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, 
I'll mix it in compost teas. I inject it into my huge compost piles to really accelerate the, the activity. Again, we're talking about mm-hmm. microbial activity so that I can turn a compost that much faster. Um, a lot of times here, I found a, a, a really good compost supplier, but it's very, very um, hot and it's used with, with a lot of uh, chicken byproducts and, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of reeks. Um, when I start spraying and kind of capping off that compost as I'm letting it age, cause I can get it very inexpensively. I can let that compost age. I'll go ahead and inject that compost pile. Um, and, and it'll break down a lot of those odors and aromas, um, that I don't really want to smell at my farm. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and neither do my guests or clients or anything like that. Um, so I use it in that way. Um, you know, as a foliar, I, I throw it through my drip. I throw it through, um, you know, the wobblers or I, I yep. ir- top water irrigate through wobblers. Um, that'll allow the, the chip through my aisles to, to break down a little bit faster. A couple other things, um, depending on if you're not a certified organic farm, um, while I don't use Roundup, a lot of people out there um, have just purchased farms or, or, or have um, taken over a lease property and where, where the previous owner was using uh, 2,4-D or Roundup. Back to what Stephen was saying with the pathogen um, increase, there was a big study in 2009, I think it was. Is that right, Stephen? I believe so, yes. Yeah, so where, where it talked about um, agrigrow's effect on fusarium colonies where it, there was a dramatic reduction in the fusarium colonies um, that is directly related to the use of Roundup and, and glyphosate. And so if you're trying to restore kind of the healthier soils from, from spent farms that you may have just purchased, mm-hmm. um, it's a great way to um, apply and broad spectrum, um, you know, huge acreages for an, an inexpensive value. Yeah. So those are ways I use it. Yeah. Steven, you got anything to add there? Uh, not really. Uh, not really. I mean, uh, as Luke said, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's not just fusarium. I mean, that one specific study that he was speaking to, that was a USDA study was monitoring the impact on fusarium, but mm-hmm. we've had other studies that were done. Uh, that sh- and, and again, we don't sell this product as a fungicide or anything like that. This is just simply some of the soil health benefits that happen when you get healthy microbial populations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. working the way nature intended. And again, uh, there are, we have numerous studies and research reports that show that some of your pathogenic bacteria families, fusarium, anthracnose, pythium, a lot of your disease causing mm-hmm. species, they are reduced where these products are, are uh, uh, incorporated into the production environment. So, you know, that's again, one of the side benefits that you get in addition to enhanced yield and improvement in quality. Yeah. And I think that's something interesting because you've, uh, I think Luke's told me about how hard it is to actually sell this because there's really not any, as you said, PNK in it. It's like, well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you clearly can't put a lot on the bottle. That that is correct. I mean, in most states, it's registered as a specialty fertilizer or a micronutrient fertilizer because there are uh, chelated micronutrients within Mm -hmm. these products. And so we use them as a carrier and we also have natural uh, carbon sources in there as far as a readily available food source for the uh, microbial populations. But again, when you talk about what the product is being a 
prebiotic and, and consisting of over 400 different biomolecules. I mean, it's able to work on a number of levels, whether you apply it to the foliage of the plant, whether you apply it to the soil, whether it's applied to the seed, uh, you're stimulating those native microbial populations in that production environment. And again, that's why Luke talks about the diversity that he's been able to. The thing that was a common denominator of, of Luke's various ways of using, utilizing these products is they're all areas where they have different microbial communities and a prebiotic is able to enhance them. So again, that goes back to the question of why this product can work regardless of the soil type or the production environment that you're growing in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what are you excited to see uh, some of the industries you're working with? Cause I know Luke's told me about, you know, wastewater and, and, and wildlife. I mean, wildlife to me is not kind of really exciting because I know that's something that, you know, there's a lot of people into that right now. I think for me, like, I, it's really cool to see hunters out there really stewarding the environment, really getting um, into uh, developing habitats and um, developing areas where they can grow not just deer, but, but wild turkey populations. And, and there's a, a tremendous amount of people that are taking it seriously, I think, at a larger scale than, than we would even imagine in terms of developing um, these habitats and ecosystems where they would otherwise just be fallow. They would just be grown up and um, used in, in a way that isn't fostering nearly as much wildlife or um, plant growth life. <laughs> I mean, it's really cool to see that volume go out and, and the hunting crowd and community taking it seriously and doing no-till growing and, and really cool things in that regard. So I think that's exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now, too, the, I think the thing, too, which is exciting is, you know, the quantity you're shipping to other countries, too, and just seeing how those other countries are starting to take soil health, you know, really seriously and, and putting a lot of thought and effort into that as well. Uh, without a doubt. And in, in, in some cases, quite honestly, Michael, I mean, many of these countries over in the EU, for example, we just shipped uh, four ocean, three or four ocean containers of product that was loaded out this week to go to Denmark, you know, very uh -huh. small nation, but a nation that is very conscientious about the quality of products that they put on their land and on their soil and that's transferred down that gets into our food chain. And so again, a lot of these countries have been ahead of us here in the United States, as far as making sure that they only put good quality materials and inputs on their soil because they realize it's going to affect the quality of the food that we consume. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, that has been certainly favorable to us. I mean, as the world becomes more conscientious of, of our soil health and the impact that has on our food supply, it has certainly benefited companies like us and, and us having products that can actually be a part of the solution to those uh, places that are facing those type of challenges. And I think the thing too, is you guys have both conventional and certified organic products too. So that's awesome to see, you know, be able to serve both those markets relatively easily. Uh, that's right. And, and again, even though we started in, you know, 1980, we have always approached everything we do from a natural standpoint, working in harmony with nature. And uh, we do have products that are certified organic, but quite honestly, all of our products are natural in nature. And so uh, there's nothing that is uh, toxic or synthetically derived from them. So, you know, which, whatever product line you decide to go with, they're all going to be 100% natural, but we have gone through the certification process for people who do need a certified mm -hmm. organic inputs. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, it's great for, you know, you said the wildlife, the commercial, but I think it's also, and Luke, where we're seeing too, is the growth of the back to the land movement, the homesteading, someone that just wants to get started and they're going to come on like a wild piece of property and need something to help them, you know, tackle that. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's where coming into it, 
with with not with a, a city background, um, mm-hmm. you know, you're up against a lot of odds. You know, it's a totally new environment. And it's kind of scary and it's a lot of hard work. Um, and I, I just go back to how simple it is to um, put an application rate in a in a, a basic spray tank and go out and, and go to work and and see your farm come to life. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, you know, interesting, Stephen, you've been in now this 40 years or, you know, and it's your, you know, your father started it. What do you think the future of agriculture looks like in the next, you know, 10, 20 years? Well, I definitely see it trending in this direction. Uh, uh, growers are realizing that a lot of the problems that we've have happened uh, in commercial agriculture, again, which that is really where the majority of our, our business is in commercial agriculture. That's where we started. But you know, it, what's interesting, Michael, is we hear these advertisements on the radio, we see them on TV, people advertising products for our health, and they'll tell you all the benefits, but then right at the end, they give you this disclaimer of all the potential mm-hmm. side effects that can happen, all the negatives that can happen if you take and consume this product. Or you, well, you know, you think back to farmers and some of the problems that were created, you know, mm-hmm. farmers did not start out to deplete their soil, their native microbial populations. They started out buying product because they offered a solution to a problem they were facing. You know, you even think mm-hmm. back to Roundup, you know, uh, hey, they thought, hey, this is going to help us uh, in, yeah. in our weed control and simplify. Well, they didn't realize it was going to develop uh, resistant plants and it was going to have a negative influence on the microbiome in the production environment. Again, mm-hmm. these are some of the, the, benef- the negative benefits and negative consequences that have come from utilizing chemical fertilizers and some of these chemistries because Every time they're applied, there is an effect on the other side. There are those negative side effects. And so we are seeing farmers realizing, hey, it is important the type of input, the products and the imp- uh, inputs and the sources they're derived from and realizing that things do work better whenever you work in harmony and balance nature rather than trying to alter it. And so, again, that's really what I'm excited about is that as, as time goes by, we're seeing science and uh, confirm what we've known 30 and 40 years ago uh, is that, you know, these products can be a part of the solution. And, you know, the question you ask, what are we excited about? What we're seeing happen in commercial agriculture is what has happened over the last 10 to 20 years, Michael, is the farms are getting bigger and the farmers are getting fewer. There's more and more consolidation. And so one of the things that really excites me is this back to the farm movement and this micro farm and, and the small farm movement that you guys are are really uh, leaders in and, and be able to help so many people is it's increasing our audience of people that we're able to provide products and, that can help these people accomplish their goals to be sustainable, to produce higher quality crops, to enhance the production on their farms, and to do so in a way that is going to ensure that the next generation is going to be able to inherit a track of ground that was in better shape than when they received it. And so mm-hmm. we're really excited and thankful to be able to offer products that not only you know, will, will improve the quality of the crops you're growing today, but it's going to improve the quality of your soils generations to come. Mm, gotcha. All right. Um, what are some places people can connect with you um, and find out more about uh, what you guys do and your products? Yeah, um, we're uh, kind of rebuilding a lot of different uh, web platforms for each different audience. Um, right now we're working on a small farms platform, which should be up and live by the time this podcast airs probably. Um, and you can find us there. You can find us just, and, and get directed just by going to agrigrow.com. Um, and, and, that's, and that's spelled A- yeah, A-G-R-I-G-R-O. There is no W. A-G-R-I-G-R-O.com. 
And then you can find kind of whatever space you're in, whether that's homesteader, uh, market gardener, orchard care, pasture management, um, the home gardener, or even conventional agriculture. You can find kind of your place in your home. Um, and, and we're really working on trying to come alongside uh, the farmers and build a community uh, within that social media platform, whether that be Facebook, Instagram, um, and, and just kind of do life together and, and see what, what's working and what's not and talk more than just agro. I mean, we're in it for the farmer. Um, if, if our products don't work for you, if your calcium's right, we're not going to suggest that you buy our calcium. You, you know, you're out there and, and killing it. If, if you think that a prebiotic is right for you, you know, give it a try. Um, we want, we want belief in the product more than we want to sell you a product. Um, and, and we believe that the farmer is really the hero. You know, we're not the hero. We just, um, are fortunate enough to be a manufacturer of a great product with a great product line that, um, is, is helping a lot of farmers, but the farmer is the hero, not us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're just supporting their giving the helping them make, have better production with, um, less work. Right. All right. Well, Steven and, uh, Luke, any final words before we wrap up? Well, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to share with you and your listeners, Michael. It's a privilege to join you today. We feel honored that uh, we were invited to be a part of this. And, uh, and I just want to say thank you uh, for giving us the time to share our story today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to say thank you for all that you're doing in your space and the way that you're encouraging and training and teaching farmers and, and really training that next generation of farmer of which, you know, I'm one, you know, I've, I've benefited tremendously from, from being a part of the community um, that you have at small farm university and kind of being on there and seeing all the different growers and the talents that they have and what they're bringing to the table. And um, it's really cool to see what you're doing and the tools that you're providing for, for my space and how I grow on my farm. Um, thank you. Well, yeah, thank you. Um, but yeah, it's great to have you guys on. And again, I, um, again, I'm, you know, going back to like how we met Luke is again, you know, I'm super suspicious of all this stuff. So I had to try it and, and test it every which way. And, uh, and, uh, again, I, I couldn't argue with the data we collected. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think if I will link, obviously link to that, I think in the show notes here, but I did a post and I showed the exact, you know, the exact way we collected the data for this strawberry trial that we did last summer. Um, and just, you know, the hundreds of different data points that we put in to kind of give us that. So, um, yeah, the numbers didn't lie. And, um, again, I'm all about profit and because, you know, a, a profitable farm is a sustainable farm. That's the first step right. to sustainability. So that's why, you know, we're, that's why we were, you know, interested in this type of product because I Obviously, it's all about helping farmers, and that's why we exist. So, again, thank you both, and uh, look forward to catching up in the future. Sounds great. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael. We appreciate it. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. 
So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.